Well, she may have picked up from our songs, from our readings, we are fully into the season of Lent now. Today's the first Sunday of Lent. The gospel reading we just read is actually our Lenten icon that you have here, the three temptations of Jesus. And yet, even though this is the first Sunday of Lent, Lent began on Wednesday. We were here on Wednesday evening, saw many of you here, which was wonderful. And yet, many of you were not able to be here, especially those of you who have little ones. 7.30 on a Wednesday night is a tricky time to come to church. And so, what I want to do is rather than uh, in any way shame you for that, or leave you behind as though if you weren't on the boat on Wednesday, you're just going to have to wait for 40 days. I want to bring us all on board and say, let's journey together as a people. And so if you've not yet begun this Lenten journey, today is your chance. Today is your chance to fully get on board and go with us towards the cross, towards Easter as we kick off Lent. And so if you were here Wednesday, I ask your forgiveness in advance because I'm going to give a three-minute summary of my sermon. And so you've heard a little bit of this, but just as a way to bring us on board and head the same direction because I'm mindful. Some of you, this may be your 20th, 30th Lent. You, you've been to Ash Wednesday since you were a child, and you know this like the back of your hand. Others of you quite literally may not know what I'm talking about. You're hoping, I really hope he explains this Lent thing, because I don't have a clue. Like, you have no grid for this whatsoever. Many of us are probably somewhere in between those two, and wherever you find yourself, it is okay. Absolutely okay. And every year there's an invitation in Lent that wherever you find yourself with the Lord, you can enter into it in a new way, in a different way. And that's the beauty of these rhythms of life is that even though the rhythms are predictable and consistent, we change. We change every year. And therefore, when we engage them, we encounter them in a different way. And so the one thing I would want you to hear about Lent is this. We don't know how to feast well because we don't know how to fast well. I said this on Wednesday. We don't know how to feast well because we don't know how to fast well. And when we don't know how to fast, what we end up doing is we're always feasting. When we don't know how to fast, we just always feast. Because if given the option by default, it's much easier to always choose to feast rather than it is to fast. And yet, as I said on Wednesday, uh, when I pose this to my children... Initially, if I say, would you like to have Christmas every day of the year? Would you like your birthday every day of the year? Initially, they're like, yes, that sounds amazing. And yet, as we sat with it, even on Wednesday, we sat with that over lunch. And they began to see, well, no, maybe not. Maybe part of the beauty of a birthday, the part of the excitement of Christmas is found in the anticipation, is found in the build-up to that event as well. And I think in similar ways, those are feasts, cultural feasts, Christian feasts. Easter is the feast of all feasts for us as Christians. And so the gift of Lent is to say, rather than just rush to it, let's let that build, let that anticipation, that sense of of readiness build. And that's really the gift of Lent, to say, are you and I ready for Lent or, or for Easter? And Lent is the way in which we learn what it means to be made ready. And so we tend to our appetites. We tend to our desires. We say no to things like alcohol and meat. And we fast and limit what we consume so as to feel what it means to be hungry. So as to actually learn again to desire. And then we turn that desire towards the Lord. And so we learn to serve others and care for the poor. And we take up intentional habits of prayer. These are the things we do in this season so that when Easter comes, we are actually ready. 
And we have great joy and excitement and delight in that feasting season. And so one of the ways, really two of the ways we're going to sit with this and make ourselves ready, not just individually, but as a people. On the one hand, like we just heard in our gospel reading, we go into the wilderness. And Lydia kicked off this morning a wilderness course where we will, before church at nine, anyone is invited to come and sit with these gospel themes of wilderness and the way in which that plays out in the scripture and in our lives. Since we're doing that for about an hour on Sunday mornings, what we're going to do in this time for the Sundays in Lent is preach from our epistle reading, the Romans text that we just read. We're going to spend five weeks in Romans looking at what Paul has to say about life in Christ and sin and death and brokenness. And in some ways, I think that's a very appropriate theme for us to sit with in Lent. And so before our time gets away from us, let's just dive into the deep end. Dive into the deep end. Because Romans is the deep end, let's be clear. If the the New Testament has a deep end, it is the book of Romans. And I'm mindful that if you've been in the church any amount of time, Romans has been often a source of great contention. I went to Christian school. I distinctly remember in high school sitting at the lunch table and half of the table was all the Reformed and Presbyterian kids and the other side was all the Baptists and all the Methodists and we're all debating Romans 9 and who's really predestined. Like, wasn't that your lunchroom experience? That that, that was mine. That's how we spent our lunch hours. It was a strange time to come of age. And so that's, that's what we did. And I mean, people, many people have said Romans is the most influential, but also the most controversial document in the whole New Testament. And I think I agree with that. It is dense. It is hard to get our heads around. What in the world is Paul saying? And we didn't even start at the beginning. We started in chapter five. And so if you struggle to get your head in any way around that reading, be at peace uh, because you're not alone. And what we're going to do is bit by bit, slowly over the next few weeks, sit with a few of the big themes. We're not going to exhaust controversies. It's not even our goal. I don't want to bring them up and just sit with the controversies. I want us to grow. That's our aim as a people. We say at Trinity, we want to be a people growing into the likeness of Jesus. And we have to believe even in all of its confusion, all of its density, that there is a way in which a book like Romans, we grow through it, that it actually can form us and the Lord can speak to us, especially as Paul sits with these big themes of sin and death and how Jesus frees us from that. It's really appropriate for us to do in Lent, to sit with how do we find new life in Christ. If you're the type of person who brings a Bible to church, which some of you are, you may want to keep it out. Um, if not, just listen closely because Paul Paul gets ahead of himself. Paul's really excited. That's what I would say about chapter 5. Paul is really excited about new life in Jesus. And like anyone who's telling a story they're really excited about, sometimes you forget how to tell a good linear story. And so he gets into it and just is full of passion and excitement. And as soon as he says one thing, it like reminds him of another thing. And he goes down that rabbit trail. And it takes seven or eight or nine verses before he ever comes back to the thing that he said. And so if we're just reading, especially like modern Western people who expect a nice logical outline, this is very confusing. Many of the letters of the New Testament, the authors dictated to a scribe. And so they're just literally talking and telling and the scribes ferociously in the corner trying to write and keep up. And that's what you see with Paul. He dives into this topic. Verse 12, he talks about sin. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because we have sinned, dot, dot, dot. You expect him to finish his sentence. Therefore, what, Paul? Yes, sin has come into the world. Death has spread. 
Well, he, he doesn't finish his sentence. It's like he says the word sinned and it makes him think about sin. And so off he goes on this multiple verse rabbit trail about sin, which if you're reading along and you think I'm getting lost, it's because he kind of gets lost a little, which means you can't just preach this verse by verse and just sit with it and try and make sense of it. Because if you look, what, what does he say? Verse 12 and 13. So death spread to all because we have sinned. It's like, oh yeah, sin. So he says, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin was not reckoned where there is no law and on and on he goes. He doesn't complete his sentence until verse 18, the very, almost the end of our, our reading today, where he says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. If he was in 10th grade English, he would fail because there's no thesis sentence. There's no top level statement to tell us what he's on about. But I think that's it. As I've set with this, it's this big picture compare and contrast sitting with themes of death and life. And he uses Adam and Jesus to, te- to speak at the most cosmic level that this is the, the contrast that he's wanting us to see giant compare and contrast and Adam and Jesus therefore become responsible you could say figureheads of both the brokenness of creation and the healing and the redemption to come Paul is is by formation and background a Jew top level most elite education Jewish man and so he thinks like a Jew and he sees the world through a Jewish lens and one of the things that would be just a default way you see the world as a Jew is to divide history into what they would have called the old age and the age to come and so the old age would have been anything that's wrong in the world sin and death and evil and brokenness all of that would get summed up into what they would call the old age and yet there is a profound longing for a new age an age to come that is defined by the rule and the reign of god that all the things that are broken in our world will be healed and made right and corrected when this new age comes and paul mindful of that hope mindful of that expectation wants people to see that new age has in fact come in Jesus. We've sat with this for 2,000 years, and so it doesn't feel quite as revelatory, we might say, because we have history behind us. But in his day, this is this is profound news, and it's profound for us as well. We just have to have ears to hear it and be able to see the good news that it, in fact, is. And so using that as a bit of a way to frame this, because we could sit here for an hour and not even begin to scratch the surface. Let's just see, what, is he, what does he speak of with these ages? The old age, the age of Adam, the age of sin and death, and then the age to come. So verse 12 is where you really see the old age, where death spread to all because all have sinned. In many ways, this is a hard thing for us to sit with. Hard for us to square verses like this with our sense of individual responsibility. Because most of us in this room are Americans. If not, you're in America. And so you you breathe in an individualist air. It's in the air we breathe. And so this kind of text that speaks to this collective inherited responsibility cuts against everything that we're wired for. Because you and I want to believe whoever we are, whatever we become for good or for evil, for better or worse, is entirely on our shoulders. And it's up to me to figure out who I'm going to be. And I'm going to be a self-made man and no one is in my way and no one can stop me. And if I want to do it, I can do it. And yet we just know that's not true. Experientially, we know that's not true. There are forces at work in our world that are bigger than our individuality. Things like 
economic injustice, things like racial inequality. We are born into those separate from anything you or I do. Privilege. If you are born into privilege, it's not because you made yourself that way. We are born into a world that affects us in countless ways. And we talk, I think, often around here in positive ways about the fact that we belong together. We try and push against that individuality and say we're meant to be a community, a people on a mission together. But I think Paul's wanting us to see there's a negative side to that as well, that we are also all connected in our brokenness and that the brokenness, the the evil in our world is so pervasive that none of us are immune from it. And the word for that, the biblical word for that is sin. And in Romans 5, really, to push even further back, it's this this word of, of, of original sin. You may have heard that. It's kind of a theological term. Talking about Adam, the original sin. The, the fundamental foundational ailment is what Paul's wanting us to see. And there's been quite a lot that's been said about original sin. What I would want to say is this. It's not as much the fact that Adam as a person sins and therefore you and I carry his individual guilt. What it is far more trying to say, I believe, is Paul is saying that the effects of sin and the brokenness of sin in our world touch everyone who's ever come before and ever will come since. And there's no way to escape it. And so you and I are born into a world in which that sin affects us. It means we are predisposed towards brokenness and evil because it's the world in which we are in. That The world is crooked and broken and bent out of shape. And I, I don't think we like to wrestle with that. Like none of you are just like wildly nodding in agreement with me right now. Well, because we try to minimize that. We try and think we've moved beyond this. That sin is some ancient idea that's primitive and kind of backwards. And we're far beyond it. You know, we're, we're modern people. We, we've, we've removed the chaos from our world. And we've brought in order. We've brought in technological advancement in such a degree that we don't need to wrestle with sin. And yet it's been interesting to me to read the news the last week. Because all of you are sitting here thinking about coronavirus and the balance in your stock market account. <laughs> And it's fascinating. You sit with that for one week and you see a world reveal its true colors, we could say. You see the way in which chaos lives just below the surface and is just always wanting to bubble up. And how fear and anxiety can be so quick to rise to the surface that even the slightest hint that something's awry. And what Paul's trying to say is things are very awry. Even more than your stock market account, even more than a pandemic flu that's spreading the world, as serious as those are, even more than economic and racial injustice, these are all symptoms of a deeper ailment. And what's beautiful is the church for so many years specifically talked about sin as an ailment, as a sickness. And so its its effects were like a pandemic, and yet the solution, therefore, that Paul will get to in just a moment, is also a healing remedy. That we are sick in our souls. That creation longs for healing, the Bible says. Because it's a healing that every one of us needs. And what Paul wants us to see, the heart of the Christian faith is there's nothing you or I can do to escape this pandemic. There's nowhere you can go to hide. There's nothing you can do because every one of us is infected. And whatever you try and do to fix yourself, it just simply won't work. Lydia last week referenced the Chronicles of Narnia, and I'd hate to break that streak. And so we're going to keep it going. Uh, in in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, like a really beautiful image of this is a, a boy, a character named Eustace, who's not a very good boy. And he becomes a bit like a dragon, a very dragonish, it says. And and he tries to free himself. He doesn't want to be a dragon anymore. And he tries to to rid himself of his scales 
fails. And yet Lewis, I think with Romans 5 in mind, he tries every time he, he gets rid of a layer of scales, there's another one underneath. And the deeper and deeper he goes, he can't get rid of his dragonish ways. And the Christ figure, Aslan, says, you have to let me do it. And it's painful and it hurts, but only I can set you free. And he, he does. He submits to that painful healing liberation. And he's actually freed of being a dragon. And he's returned to being a boy. And I think there's something profound in that image where, where if you get lost in Paul's theology, I think Lewis can really helpfully help us understand the heart of what Paul's trying to say, which is the Lord wants to set you free. And it's deeper than you ever realize. Your sickness and your capacity for evil, the chaos that lives within you is deeper than you'd ever know. And if you think you're rid of it, try something like the stocks or the corona or whatever else it is. There are things that when you think it's gone, it will rear its head and you'll realize I'm not as free as I thought I was. And so there's actually only one remedy to begin to believe that through this death, we may in fact find life, move towards life. A book I've been reading, mentioned it on Ash Wednesday, a book called Helps to a Holy Lent. He talks about death. He talks about brokenness and evil. And speaking of ashes, he said, ashes must first be sprinkled before the ugliness in us can be changed to a spiritual beauty. And I think that's the gift of Lent is that we see brokenness. It's kind of a hard season because you see the brokenness that's in you and you have to confront it. And if we're walking faithfully through this season, you will have opportunities to be confronted by your brokenness. And yet we have to also believe that death gives way to life. And so I want to wrap up by looking at Paul's vision of hope. He's very hopeful at the end of this. And by verse 18, he kind of leans into this this new age, this life to come, justification and life for all. And what I love, Paul's vision of life is this. Paul's solution is not just to swap Adam out with Jesus. It doesn't just restore us to what we were before. Look at what he says in verse 15. If the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in Jesus abounded. Again, verse 17, much more surely, he likes this phrase, much more surely will we receive life through the dominion of Jesus. And then if we'd read one verse Further, verse 20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It literally says grace superabounds, superabounds. Here's why that's important. Jesus doesn't simply undo Adam's wrongs to bring us back up to level, to bring us to where we were at the beginning. And I think there's a real temptation for us as we walk through our life to idealize wherever we were before and to say, if I could just somehow get back to where I was before that pain, before that betrayal, before I made that foolish decision, before I took that job, before I left that relationship. And we think, if only I could get back to where it was as good as it was then, that would be healing. And yet that's not the Christian vision at all. The actual heart of our Christian faith is that we are filled with brokenness. Our lives are in pieces. And yet what Jesus does is he comes into that death and brokenness and says, what if I make something new? What if I actually recreate it? And, and, and in, so, in so doing, where you find yourself is greater than you even were before. In the early church, they looked at Adam and Eve not as perfect, but as infants, which is an interesting thought. Sit with that this week. The idea that they were infants in their faith and that the Lord actually invites us to grow and that even for all of eternity, 
when we think we've, we've reached an end, there's not an end. We are always growing and being made more and more like him. And our brokenness is a part of that. That's the beauty of this message is that the things that feel like they've brought death and despair and sorrow into your life and you only wish you could go where you were before, actually in that brokenness, God makes you new. And not just new, but recreates you into something more beautiful than you were before. St. Augustine called it a, a felix cupla, a fortunate fall. That in some way, the mystery of God's will, that the brokenness of our creation is a way in which we see the beauty and the majesty of God even more fully, even more beautifully. Julian Norwich once famously said, sin is the cause of all this pain, but all manner of things will be well. And I think that's maybe a good word for us to sit with for Lent. We don't hide from sin. Sin is the cause of all this pain. And yet, Paul wants us to see every manner of thing will be made well. Everything will be not just made how it was before, but that much more beautiful because Christ is risen. And so this is the journey towards the cross and towards the tomb that we are on. And I I would just challenge you, can you believe? Because this could feel abstract, but you have things in your life that feel very broken. And you think, I'm not sure about that. I, I would love at least a shot to go back and see what it feels like if I hadn't made that step or that choice or or been wounded that way. Um, Can you choose to believe as hard as it is that in Lent, maybe the Lord actually is going to show you his goodness and his love for you in a new way through your brokenness, not in spite of it. So Lord have mercy on us. If you're able, would you please stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the North side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.